the sidewalk Carjacking old lady at a red light Pull a gun on the owner of a liquor store You think it's cool, act a fool if you like Cuss out a cop, spit in his face Stomp on the flag and light it up Yeah, you think it's tough Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined here by our host and star of this show, the Hall of Famer Jim Cott. This is Cott's Corner, episode 364 in the network. Before we get going on a loaded show today, we got a loaded program for you today. Just want to thank three groups of people here. Now it's two, now it's three. Uh, first, our audience, 60,000 and growing. Appreciate your support. You know what to do after this show. Five stars, write some comments, help us battle the analytics of the podcast world, just like they do in Major League Baseball. To Blackout Coffee, if you if you follow our show and you follow our posts, Blackout Coffee is our newest friend on the market. When you go to their site, type in David, all capital letters, with the number 20 after it. It'll be good through this Friday. Then we have an expanded program with them with all of our hosts uh, starting next week, and we'll keep you informed. But type that in up till Friday this week. Get 20% off your purchase, 15% in perpetuity. Uh, we love people that love coffee. I'm drinking their espresso now. Love people that love baseball, and I love people that give me discounts. Um, and the third person, probably our most loyal listener, Jim, um, friend, friend of yours, friend of the show, Ted Kubiak. We've had him on a few times. Uh, I love my talks with him off the air, but he's got a book old school. I want to recommend that for people looking for a stocking stuffer for their kids or, you know, husband, wife, it's a great baseball book, Chronicle of Our Baseball Times. Um, I recommend it. And then he has a beautifully written uh, fielding manual. And if you want to teach your kid how to field a ball, there's nothing better than how to field a ground ball that Ted Ted wrote in there. Ten-year veteran, Major League Baseball, three-time world champion with the A's. He is coming out with his children's book in January, so stay tuned for that. We'll have him on the air to launch that as well. So um, with that, Jim, welcome back to your show. Well, thank you. And uh, right along with what you said about Ted, we've I've said it before on a previous podcast, uh, in the old Kansas City Stadium where the visiting clubhouse was kind of up from the infield and uh, on the third base side. And I would tell the Twins infielders to watch Ted field ground balls. Smooth was was his nickname as far as I was concerned because, uh, yeah, nobody, uh, nobody fielded it uh, fundamentally, properly, or smoother than Ted. So uh, read that book. He's, he's had a lot of good advice for you. Yeah, I would I would uh, assume a, a great fielder like yourself too, with uh, with all the glow, gold gloves you won with Rawlings, that you you of all people would appreciate the way he went about his business. So. Yeah, I sure did. I, uh, uh, you know, and, and today, of course, it, the the emphasis is on power and speed first, and fundamental fielding second, and uh, no more evident of that than in the pitching position where it's really gone downhill, but. Uh, you know, decades ago, uh, a guy who could just uh, field and make the routine plays and, and be an average hitter uh, could be a big league player. Unfortunately, yeah. those days are gone. Yep. We just had a good, great conversation with one. You're the you're the back end of a doubleheader. We had Bob Schaefer. We brought on Jeff Fry. He's going to start his show again with us next week, uh, helped us launch this podcast and been on the speaking circuit, but he'll be back with his regular show next week. So, um, we had a great conversation about that. You, you had some interesting research thrown your way. I know we, we both uh, know the gentleman that did it. F phenomenal job digging in 
into the weeds on pitching, but uh, we had some research on former former minor league pitcher, uh, former high school baseball coach, and, and now he's trying to help uh, baseball recognize this arms race, let's call it, that the injuries that are going on. But Jim Colonel, Jim, Jim passed on some information to you, and did, did you want to touch into that a little bit? Yeah, I've, uh, I've since you've mentioned uh, Jim's name, I, I guess about a month has gone by now, and uh, we have really exchanged a lot of uh, intense emails and uh, texts. And uh, Jim, as you mentioned, was a former top prospect with the Yankees in the 90s, shoulder issue, and uh, career never got on track from that. But uh, he's got a lot of great ideas, and, and I can appreciate his frustration because uh, I, I deal with it on a dealt with it on a regular basis and that we would sure like to hear big league coaches and big league organizations listen to us, but they don't. So we have to get over it. And, you know, in Jim's case, uh, if he did a podcast or a blog just to get his stuff out there, uh, it would be interesting if, if it caught on with somebody in a decision making process in the big leagues, because, you know, I know he's right and he knows he's right about the pitching motion, but he can't get anybody to listen to him on the big league level. And so I think that's why our efforts are going to be geared toward uh, the video he has, the athletic pitcher, and see if we can't start with, you know, 12, 13-year-old kids to teach them uh, proper mechanics. Uh, If you check out all the surgeries that are happening to pitchers' arms, uh, I'd agree with Jim that most of them are necessary because of a poor throwing motion. And he has the video and the research and the information to back it up. Uh, A lot of it, I think, is because our young pitchers and even big league pitchers are all, you know, they're all uh, consumed with the thought that they have to throw so hard that they're throwing, uh, they're trying to throw faster than their bodies will allow them to throw. And some get injured when they're youngsters. And some, I was just reading this morning, you know, the Red Sox hired Andrew Bailey, who was Rookie of the Year with the Oakland A's, a very successful pitcher for a couple years, boom. And he had multiple surgeries, and uh, his career ended as a player. Now he's coming back as a, as a coach uh, for the Boston Red Sox. Uh, but I think in, um, in Jim's case, uh, with the research and everything he's done, we have to concentrate on presenting solutions as opposed to critical of past actions, because those are those are done. I don't think we're going to change big league uh, baseball ops guys and pitching coaches. We're not going to change their mind. There's only one and, and that I know personally, because I coached Carl Willis uh, when I was coaching for Pete Rose in Cincinnati. Got to know Carl well when he was a member of the Twins in their world championship year, and he's now coaching the tribe, Cleveland, he's going to do it one more year, but he is still a guy that sort of relates to the things that I coached with him. But that being said, he still has to listen to the people upstairs that present all the numbers. And that's what's frustrating for, uh, for Jim Colonel to get over that. Uh, you know, a lot of us, including myself, pitch for a long time with a less than perfect motion. And uh, how we did it, I don't know, but we were able – the only, the only answer I have in my own case is that 
from the time I was a youngster, nine, 10 years old, all I ever did was throw a baseball, play catch, go through a pitching motion, mimic Bobby Shantz. And so I just did that thousands of times. And I think my body got accommodated, you know, accommodated that motion. So I never really had any serious arm injuries, even though it wasn't a perfect motion. If you wanted to look in, and I'm, I'm uh, using Jim's information here, Jim Colonel, if you wanted to look at two perfect motions where the arm is in the right position at three or four important times during the motion, would be Fergie Jenkins as a right-hander, Steve Carlton as a left-hander, both in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, and no, uh, I, I, so those those are the perfect motions. Now, whether we could teach kids to actually have that arm in in the right position from the time they're thirteen or fourteen, uh, I don't know. But I think that's Jim's goal, and uh, there are guys on the big league level that uh, I'm sure are not are not throwing with the fundamentally perfect motion that we would like to see, uh, but they've survived. I'd even go back to a great pitcher like Tom Seaver. I mean, Jim's research, and I, I can relate to that, would be you want to you wanna stand over the rubber tall, and then when you stride, your front foot is a brace. So your front leg straightens, and then you kind of throw against that. Well, if you looked at Tom Seaver, great Hall of Famer pitch for years, and I remember when we talked about Tom's motion, the, the description was always drop and drive. He flexed that back knee way down, drove, kept his front knee flexed, and he, he did that, even though if you looked at the ideal pitching motion from a kinetic standpoint, that wasn't perfect. So this is what, uh, this is what Jim is up, a bent, uh, up against. And uh, I found it interesting. Uh, I, I sent his... Uh, I sent his video, the athletic pitcher, on to Morgan Sword, who's the head of baseball ops at MLB. And Morgan had told me he is really uh, impressed with the, with the feedback he's got from all kinds of different pitchers in different eras. And I'm one of them that, that told him basically, I think, how, how wrong today's game is by concentrating on velocity and spin rate and things of that nature. So... Um, whether, whether it's going to take hold in the big league level, I don't know. But I think we have to see what we can do to make a, a – and I, I sold Morgan. I said, MLB needs to have a, a handbook where parents and volunteer coaches who mean well but don't really have the knowledge, that they could somehow get the knowledge to teach young kids to throw properly from, you know, from a young age. Uh, Chris Sale – I just read where Chris Sale, the Red Sox lefty, who's gone through some surgery and hasn't been very successful uh, uh, in the last couple of years, has now decided that his off-season program is going to be throwing off a mound. Well, what a concept. That's what we do when you pitch in a game. You throw <laughs> yeah. off a mound. We'll so he, he's, just going to, he's just going to go to a throwing program, which we, we always did. And I'd be interested to see come spring training – and into the season, whether that all of a sudden is beneficial to him after, uh, you know, all the setbacks he's had. One more thing on on, uh, on Jim Colonel that's very interesting, and I've mentioned this before. Uh, these are these are his words. You you could look at a as a young aspiring golfer, 
you can look at Tiger Woods or you can look at Rory McIlroy and watch their swing and try to emulate that and be a good golfer. You can look at Tom Brady throw a forward pass and, and you can try to emulate that and maybe come up with a good motion for a quarterback. But with pitchers, you can't do it because every pitcher has a little quirk and I call, I've always called a pitcher's motion their fingerprint. It's all a little different. That's why I like to teach kids to roll them a ground ball, pick up the ground ball, hop, step, and throw. The release point is just slightly different. But that slight difference might have a lot of influence on whether, whether their body is accommodating that motion. And, and maybe you can eliminate injuries with that. Uh, but pitchers are all different. So it's hard as a young kid to say, I want to be just like Justin Verlander, or I want to be just like Clayton Kershaw. I mean, Clayton Kershaw has this herky-jerky motion that you wouldn't teach to a young kid, and yet he's been one of the great pitchers in uh, in his era. So uh, I found that interesting that uh, uh, Jim's comment about comparing a uh, you know a quarterback and uh, and a PGA touring pro and. And I'm going to uh, I'm I'm sold on Jim's research and his uh, when I looked at the videos of what he suggests mechanically, uh, I could relate to that. Uh, I think I sent you the video of me uh, pitching to Johnny Bench in the 75 All-Star game. So I completely changed my motion where I went to a step and throw and I got the ball up out of the glove into throwing position rather quickly. Yeah, you can't trigger one of the prerequisites for a, a proper pitching motion, and Jim has that in there. So I think it's good stuff, and I, I wish him well with it, and I hope that we can uh, we can really concentrate on helping young pitchers uh, develop proper mechanics, and hopefully eliminate injuries and surgeries. Yeah, like kind of working backwards. You sent you did send me that video, and it it was um, I was sitting watching it and felt off balance as a hitter watching you pitch because it was so, I was trying to, you know, as in my wife laughs all the time because she sent me a, a thing from social media. How do you know your, how do you know your husband was a baseball player? And she, I'll be, you know, every now and then I'll take a dry swing in the house with no bat in hand. She's like, what are you doing? I was like, I, don't, I, don't, I didn't even know I was doing it. Um, but, uh, and there's always bats lying around somewhere, but I was sitting down watching that. And my natural in, instinct was, you know, you're trying to figure out how to time it. And, uh, you can see Bench laughing, like, what the heck? Oh, yeah. Well, he said after the first one, throw it to me again. And I threw him a, a fastball inside, thinking he might be looking for it again. And he, But he was ready, and he pulled it foul, and I threw it to him again. But I think it proves uh, – I know one of my favorite coaches, and you've heard my mention his name many times, Johnny Sane, and Eddie Lopat, one of the same, both successful in the big leagues with less than power. Uh but he, uh, they always said there's four ways to get a hitter out. You can have the natural stuff of a Nolan Ryan or a Sandy Koufax, or you can have the control of a Greg Maddox, or you can have movement on the ball, which Greg Maddox did as well. And then the fourth element is motion. And I found that when the Twins thought my career was about over at 35, uh, Johnny Sane kind of taught me that quick pitch motion. And so it was my motion, that fourth element that enabled me to go on and, and have success for the next uh, nine years, really. Yeah. 
I, and I've got a couple questions that will help probably transition us to, to the next topics we want to get to. But you always go back to that, you know, with the pitchers finding their natural motion, throwing them ground balls or hitting them ground balls at shortstop, let them crow hop. I'm a firm believer in that, too. I, I, uh, we started doing that with our young guys. So they got less. I found that they got less cookie cutter with their approach, especially as I weaned them off of their quote unquote pitching coaches that they were coming to me with. Um, and they found more of their natural true self in throwing. And as a result, less soreness, less uh, what they perceived to be injury. I just thought they were, you know, it's just natural course of learning the pitch. But do you think that the cookie cutter approach that we utilize with our youth pitchers nowadays, and I say we, not me, but the, uh, the YouTube population out there, that cookie cutter approach lends itself to injuries because we are trying to cram these kids into a box and they're going to eventually take that shape. Yeah, I don't understand the, uh, you know, the pitching from the set position, the, the set for those that don't uh, relate to that is when when there's a man on base and you go in, uh, you know, kind of uh, sideways on the rubber, that's called the set position uh, as opposed to a windup. And I always thought the windup, it did not necessarily help you provide more power, but it gave you a rhythm, a start. You know, it's, it's very difficult to start from just a static position. Uh, even if you watch a running back, if you watch football these days, a running back, when the ball is snapped, if he's going to go left, he kind of leans through his right first and pushes off the right foot and goes that way. So it's tough to just start from a static position. And what the windup did back in the, quote, old days is we swung our arms and we built up a little momentum. If you watch Bob Gibson's motion, I mean, he has got a violent motion, and you can tell how he could generate so much energy with that. Uh, the last guy to do it in the big leagues is Paul Bird, uh, who, who pitched for the – I think he's been t- out of the game now for 10 years. But we've all gone to that stand on the rubber, and then it's like one, two, three, four. You could dance to it. And, you know, a, a body in motion stays in motion until you stop it. So to me, what the infield drill does is when you're fielding that ground ball, you don't stop at any point during that. It's one continuous motion. You have what we call a crow hop. You have that little hop step. You're pushing off your back foot. The ball, your arm comes out of the glove, gets up in the throwing position. You stride and stride toward the target, and you throw the ball all in one motion. You you don't see an infielder stop and start like a pitcher. So if you were doing that as a as a, uh, a, a pitching prospect and you just fielded ground balls, say 10 of them, pick it up, throw it, and then jump on the mound and use that same motion and see what it does to free up, you know, your arm and your shoulder and everything, as opposed to, as you said, the cookie cutter and the stop and start, uh, that they're that they're using now, and I I have to believe every time you stop that muscle, I'd need a kinesiologist or somebody to explain why, but that muscle stops and contracts, and you know then it works again, then it stops, and I don't think that that can be uh, that that's got to be, you know, creates some injuries down the road. Yeah, and we we affectionately call them propeller heads who are supposed to be book smart. Yeah. And what you just described was ninth grade physics. That's called inertia, an object in motion, yeah. stay in motion. You'd think they, I'm pretty sure they took that um, to, and that should help them out. But with, well, uh, you know, when I, when I go back to that, uh, 
that little clip I sent you, which was humorous of me pitching to to Johnny Bench in the 75 All-Star game. <laughs> but I remember Brooks Robinson said to me uh, sometime during that year, uh, I forget how we crossed paths, but he said, you know, you picked up an extra foot on your fastball. I said, no, Brooksy, I haven't. I probably have lost. <laughs> I probably have lost a little speed. But what the motion did was it it appeared to the hitter because they didn't have quite as much time to go into their motion that it got on them quicker than the than the normal motion would. So it appeared that my fastball was was a lot faster than it actually was because of the motion. And I guess, as you said because of inertia and with everything going toward the target uh, at a very uncomplicated manner. Yeah. And I like the way you describe every pitcher's got that little, uh, there's something different with every pitcher. You know, it's, it's when I watched your video with, with Johnny Bench and Tanner and Blue are watching it with me and they're like, what is, what is that? What's he doing? I said, that's called unobstructed self-expression. That's Jimmy Balding. Yeah. That's Jim figuring it out. And, and he's, that's, that's, that's how he moved to the next phase of who he was. And I think we're stunting kids like that when we put them in that cookie cutter uh, uh, mentality and we're hurting them as we, we found out through a lot of these injuries. Well, I have one more Jim, Jim Colonel question. And then I think it, uh, we, we can, we can move that into our, our next topic, but his frustration is he believes that major league baseball, unless they endorse this wholeheartedly that we can't affect the next generation of pitcher. I think the information alone and the voices like yourself and the people on this network and the ones that support it, I think we can move it to the youth and push forward. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, he's got written endorsements from Jim, Joe Madden, who was a great manager, uh, Ron Darling. I think he's even got one in there from James Andrews. Yeah. So there are, there are a lot of people that agree with him, but there's this, there's this constant battle in the big divide between those that are running the game right now who for the most part, are non-players, uh, and they don't see any value in in those of us that played and the way we did it. Uh, but I, I think certainly that uh, the market for Jim and his, his information is we start with the youth, and in the long haul, it won't happen in my lifetime, but over the long haul, we may begin to develop pitchers that are more durable, haven't had surgeries, haven't had a lot of injuries as we were back in the 60s. You know, I, I kind of chuckle now at the contracts and I'm happy for guys like Sonny Gray and Kyle Gibson. Uh, Sonny's getting $25 million a year to pitch five innings. Uh, so he's getting more to do less. <laughs> and uh, that, but that's, that's kind of the, um, I don't know if you'd call it a con- conundrum. But with, with starting pitching, they're craving for starting pitching. And that's why they're paying these big money, big money to the starting pitchers. And yet, they've dumbed down the starting pitching because as soon as they pitch twice through the batting order, they're going to other pitchers. So they're not really getting full value by developing good starting pitchers, but they just they pay big money because we need them, but then they don't use them the way they should. I mean, now the cost you, I think I kidded with Brian Cashman about this. I said, you know, I could, I could save you a lot of money because I could be the starter. I could be the setup man and I could be the closer all by myself, not every game, but in quite a few games, but now you're going to pay 25 million a year to a starter 
And then you probably have two relievers in that six, seven, eight bracket, and maybe they're ten million a year. And then you got the the premier closer that you're going to pay another twenty million a year. So you're investing about fifty, sixty million over the year to win a game. <laughs> so you're you're paying a lot more and you're getting a lot less. But I'm I'm happy for the uh, pitchers that they're getting it <clears throat> because the owners had it their way for a long time. Yeah, and God bless them for making that money. We can't can't fault them. That's uh, that's it's really an owner's issue, not a pitcher's issue. But they are again. We talked physics and we we joke about propeller heads, but this is finance one hundred and one. They're trying to spend. They've got a budget. They're trying to get the most out of their budget. It doesn't seem like they're allocating it properly. Yeah. What yeah, and, like you you would think? I know. I'm talking to the twins. They're very disappointed that they. Uh, they lost Sonny Gray and uh, Kenta Maeda just went to the Tigers. But I, you would think that the the market for starting pitchers, but the agents have found a way to to uh, to keep the baseball ops people and general managers from using that approach. Is they would say, "Look, we need starting pitcher, but your guy, if he's only going to f- get go five innings, we're not going to pay him thirty million. We're going to pay him like fifteen because he's not pitching as much, but they don't. They pay him more. And uh, and then they, they can't afford to, to fill in some of the other positions and mainly the bullpen. I mean, the bullpen is so much more important today uh, than it was years ago. Uh, Whitey Herzog in 1982, when we won the World Series, uh, he's the first manager that I had that said, I'm going to build my pitching staff from the ninth inning back. So we had Bruce Suter at the end and we had Jeff Lottie and Doug Bear, two right-handers, one with a good slider, other with a live fastball. I was kind of a lefty-lefty, come in and try to get a left-hand hitter or two out. And we built our our staff from the ninth inning back. And our starters were decent, but they, they weren't the big-money, high-paid starters that uh, teams are using today. That World Series was actually on during the uh, – was on Thanksgiving Day. Uh, and he has, really? Yep. We had it. We sat down and watched a little bit and uh, Tanner actually pulled it up. He goes, I wonder if, if Mr. He calls you Mr. Cop. I wonder if Mr. Cop was in this game. I said, I think he was. I sit down and watch. So he, 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 uh, he enjoyed watching Molly and Yount and saw the Hall of Famers coming in, including yourself. So it was yeah. uh, it was fun to see. They get a kick out of that. Um, see, seeing that. So with it's been my premise on here. You mentioned running backs. Are major league pitchers? I mean, eventually this this turn of paying them high dollar has got to reverse itself because the way the market did with running backs in the NFL, the as the game changed and the running back became less important to the offense, it became more passing. They started out with the high value, and then they the, basically the market determined that they were going to pay them less. Do you see that happening with starting pitchers eventually? Well, I think it depends how many are available. You know, Marvin Miller and uh, maybe some of the current major league players, I I hope that they're schooled on who Marvin Miller was, who was the uh, head of our Players Association for years, actually recommended to us by a couple of owners. And he was the one that brought us all together and and eventually created created free agency. And, uh, you know, I think he... uh, uh, you know, he, he showed us how everybody, everyone was, you know, what they were worth. But I, I think in, uh, in the value of, uh, 
I got to I got to have you ask that question one more time about the value of starting pitchers going. Yeah, down. I just think well, that right now it's high. But yeah, I what think- he did, which was so key, a lot of owners thought that after we we be, free agency was there, which is 76, 77, that every player was going to be a free agent every year. And the owner said, well, that's crazy because we invest money into developing these kids. Well, then Marvin said, well, how many years would you like to control them? So they arrived eventually at six. And uh, because it cost him X amount of money to develop a kid in the minor league. So they wanted to have him for at least six years. Well, see, Marvin said, we, we don't want every player to be a free agent every year because that'll flood the market. So this year is a good example. There was Sonny Gray, Kyle Gibson, Lance Lynn. Uh, my eight, is there, is there still another starter out there, that a quality starter that hasn't signed yet? I think uh, Montgomery. Yeah, Jordan Montgomery. But see, there's only five or six. Lake Snell, I think, is another one. Yeah. So the the clamoring for those guys has created the old supply and demand, and that makes the price go up. So as long as there are just a few starting pitchers available, now I don't know how it compares to running backs. If a team can say, well, this guy can't do it, there's 15 other guys that can do it. In pitching, that's not the case. You don't have that many other quality starting pitchers. So as long as they just bleed the market every year with a limited number of starters, that price will go up. Now, all of a sudden, if there's 50 starting pitchers in that pool and probably their stats are similar, then the GMs and the baseball ops guys are saying, well, if we can't get him, we'll get him because we can get him for less money. So that's that's kind of how they're keeping the value of starting pitchers up because there's not many of them available every year. Now, even with the, I guess, the production, you know, now now they're asking starting pitchers to go four and a third. They're not seeing that third, fourth time around the lineup. They're changing the style of play, basically, it's kind of what they did yeah. with the running backs. That's, that's another example, and yeah. I hate to be blunt, but that's another example of really how stupid they are. Yeah. <laughs> is because if they think a, a starting pitcher can't pitch the third time through the batting order, that's their own fault. Because it has nothing to do with his physical ability. It's because you haven't taught him how to pitch, as Warren Spahn told me, kid, when the game's tied in the seventh, the game's just starting. So you have to learn to pitch Mickey Mantle in that fourth at-bat differently than you did in the first at-bat. Now a pitcher, you won't even face a hitter four times in the game. But they could if they were trained properly, but they're not trained properly. What, when, what suffers when, when we don't allow them to go third, fourth time through? Is it you know, the development of arm strength? Is it the development of how to pitch? Is it both? It's both because, first of all, this 100-pitch thing – in any sport, and, and, and even the sports that you played, whatever you played, eventually, if you're going to reach a point where your legs get tired. And in pitching, that's, that's why it's important to build up leg strength. So if you keep taking a pitcher out after 100 pitches, uh, and I've used the old probably people that have listened to our podcast are getting tired of me listening to making the same analogy, but 
If you had a horse that could win the Kentucky Derby, he's got to run a mile and a quarter. Well, if you train him all the time to run three quarters of a mile, he's never going to win the Kentucky Derby. And that's the way with pitchers. If you keep taking them out after five innings, they don't learn how to pitch out of jams. They don't pitch enough off the rubber to build their leg strength up where they are physically conditioned to pitch nine innings. And they're just dumbing them down. So it's a combination of the conditioning, you know, the training that will allow them to pitch deeper into games at full strength. And then it's also how to learn to pitch out of jam. Now in the minor leagues, uh, I, I doubt if a kid, if he goes through the batting order once, I don't know if he ever gets an opportunity to work out of, say, a bases loaded, no outs jam. And I've used Jack McKeon, my manager in the minor leagues in, in class C ball. He meant probably more to my career than any other individual baseball person going when I was 19. And I'd get a couple men on, seventh inning, nobody out. Jack would trot out toward the mound, spit a little tobacco juice toward my shoes, flip me the ball. Well, kid, you got into it. Try to figure out a way to get out of it. And they don't train pitchers like that today. They don't allow them to get into any trouble. And as a result, they don't learn how to do damage control and pitch out of trouble. I like that. And I, so I see this in hitting and, and you have a, a much better view of it on, on both sides, hitting and pitching. But am I wrong in saying that baseball, of all the sports, probably does the, the worst job of looking to the past to help with the future? It's finding guys that did it the right way, had success and duplicating that? I would say so. I don't I don't know if there's uh I don't know if there's any quarterbacks that call Tom Brady or if Tom Brady called Roger Staubach. I don't know about that and but I know in baseball, um uh, I always leaned on, you know, being able to talk to Robin Roberts and Warren Spahn, Whitey Ford. I even talked to guys that were my contemporaries to Dave McNally, uh, who was a left-hand pitcher several years younger than me with the Orioles for years. But, yeah, I don't think they, you know, you you, you honor the past. You, you don't lean on it and say we have to do it that way. But there's so much you could learn from what we went through and not not our successes but our failures. And, and the simplest advice you can give to a big league pitcher is say, just look at the scoreboard, and that will tell you how to pitch. What's yeah. the score, what's the inning, and what's the count? Like Robin Roberts described to me when they asked him how he pitched Willie Mays. So if it's three to nothing in the fourth inning and Willie's the leadoff hitter, here it is, Willie. I don't want to walk you. But if it's one to one in the eighth inning with the Tying run on second, now I'm going to pitch him differently. And that's really all you have to need. All you have to know, the scoreboard tells you how to play. And they're not looking at the scoreboard anywhere. They're looking at their iPads. Yeah. yeah. And, their, and their little uh, reminders on their cuff or the cards they got in their back pocket, which I don't understand. Why wouldn't you know before a game if you studied the opposition where different hitters hit the ball? Yeah. Now, they, they, a lot of them, I've asked that question. I get... I get driven by that when things don't make sense to me. I realize they must make sense to somebody, but I still haven't found a great answer to how that uh, the wristband, the index card, and the hat 
um, makes a pitcher or I'm sorry, makes a baseball player smarter, more uh, high agency, first principle, creative genius. I mean, I think we're losing that in the game. And I think that's a, uh, that's a contributing factor. I hope I'm not, I'm probably overstating it, but I, I do think that's killing creativity in the game. Yeah. I, 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 you know, I cringe even in football when I watch these guys that are adults and they're skilled professionals and they're looking at a cheat card on their wrist. Like, didn't we go over that before the game? I mean, because the theory was for years and I used it again, based on coaches I had, when the game starts, coaching stops. You've, you've coached a starting pitcher for three days. You've prepped him. Here's the team you're facing against. You know the hitters. Let's go over them. Now, here's the ball. It's your game. Coaching stops there. Go out there. Use your brain. Use your instincts. And, and, and then if they don't work, we go to work between starts again. But now, all this, these little cheat cards, it, it almost looks the athlete – it, it makes the athlete look dumb that he that he doesn't know those things himself. Yeah, it's like the GPS in our car. It's like the contact list in our phones. That um, I used to be great at remembering phone numbers like that. And the same thing with getting places. Now I feel like a, a knucklehead when I've got to look up somebody's phone number because you just you, you lose that muscle. Right. So yeah, you you're know. not you're not using your uh, you're not using your brain. You're in, in uh, nowadays the players, unfortunately, what we see in football, the coaches are getting fired, the uh, defensive, offensive coordinators. But gosh, they're blaming the coach for for so many things. But uh, uh, it's the players that uh, they're the they're the ones that are doing the job. Those those are the ones that uh, instead of saying, "Well, this is what the coach told me to do," uh, you you learn from the coach, but eventually you have to learn to be your own coach. It's right. That's uh, I think that's that's a that's a profound point. And with you know, you mentioned Chris Sale back in the beginning of the podcast. Maybe that's hope. I mean, as as silly as it sounds, we both laughed when we when when you were saying it that he's going back. His his thought is, I'm going to go back to working on my craft, like yeah. like I used to do, like guys did. Uh, I mean, maybe that's hope. I mean, that's that's not profound on its own, but in terms of where we're at with the baseball world, that's almost a profound thought by him. I'm going to work on my craft. Yeah, I, I hope it is because, you know, I was, I was an outlier and I, I'm, I'm dig my heels in at, at what it takes, uh, why I was able to pitch over a long period of time with having probably a less than perfect motion and, not an overabundance of power, except maybe in my youth, but I'm fortunate to have coaches that we believed in throwing a little bit every day. Uh, just to, and we call it exercising the arm. We go down to the bullpen, we call it uh, pitching 101. We go down there and just spin the ball a little bit, push off the rubber, just, just Get familiar with the rubber. That's why I like pitching every three or four days. You just feel more comfortable with being out there and what your stuff is going to be like. But yeah, it all, it would it all related to uh, it all went back to just throwing the ball. And um, I told the Cho Tommy John story when TJ was running his laps around Comiskey Park, and I had pitched nine innings the night before, and I was down in the bullpen with Johnny going through my little ekin exercise dealer. What are you doing? You can't do that. I said, well, this is where I make my living and I throw a little every day. Well, you know, 25 years later, I'm still, 
I'm still doing that. And when TJ had the surgery, uh, Dr. Job told him, as soon as you feel that arm is healed, as soon as we find out it's healed enough to play catch, I want you to throw every day. And I, I think that's missing today when uh, they take these top prospects that they've drafted in the summer, they go down to the developmental league and they pitch about 10 innings and, well, that's enough. We're going to rest them now. Well, by resting them now and not allowing him to pitch, you're, you're really – you know, stunting his progression, his ability to develop into the, the finished product that he could be. Yeah. I'm trying to think of another profession in the world, if people want to think practically about it, where you wouldn't want to perform your craft to get better. It just it seems yeah. counterintuitive to me. I well, guess that's, that's, a- that's why we have the big divide. That's why. And, and the, uh, the results are, are, are pretty obvious when you look at uh, the surgeries, uh, the number of surgeries since since Tommy had his in '74, uh, I think. Yeah. I put it. Yeah, uh, I don't know if you pointed that out to me. This the second pitcher to get Tommy John surgery was Brent Strom, who's now the coach of the Diamondbacks. I didn't know that. No, I didn't. I didn't either. Somebody alerted me to that a while back. But yeah, I mean now it's just common knowledge. Tommy's name comes up. Uh, every day with that with that surgical procedure and uh, yeah. we don't seem to be able to to slow it down it just seems to be growing and growing people almost see it as a uh, almost like a trophy i've heard families and kids talk about their first tommy john surgery like they're looking forward to it almost to, yeah that would insinuate there's going to be a second uh, which is frightening to me i want to come back mike we, we homeschool all four kids and we're getting ready to start our next phase of it and we kind of go through things they want to do and become. And my daughter asked me, if you could go back and do it again, what would you be? And I, I made a joke. I said, I, I, I did to go back and be an orthopedic surgeon or a fired football coach because they seem to make yeah. the most money. Yeah. Oh, that orthopedic surgeon, you don't have to worry about getting a hitter out. You just wait till they walk in your office and, and uh, you know, drive around in your Ferrari and do the surgeries. Yep. The, uh, who, the, the, the gentleman that you rehabbed with in New York, Vinny. Um, Vinny, uh, Vinny Perez? Perez, yeah. He, uh, he, he had said, you know, he's, he's up there and he's seeing it a lot up there. There's guys that are turning out two or three of those a day. Yeah. Uh, that's crazy. Yeah, I think the, the original procedure, I, I want to say it took an hour and a half or two hours, the one on Tommy. I believe the rehab is about the same. It kind of depends on how hard you want to work and, you know, what your body composition is. But, uh, the procedure, the time of the procedure, I think, has been cut down like, like a lot of them. I'm, I'm coming up for hip replacement surgery here in, uh, in a couple of weeks. They're going to do it robotically. And I, I believe it's in and out the same day. Yeah. It's like going to McDonald's now. You just order the number six. They get you in the drive-thru and you're... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, um, no, I, I, uh, you know, I, I'm glad Sale is doing that. I... I often wonder if kids nowadays understand that Tommy John was a pitcher and he was a oh, six. I kid, I kid about that all the time. I, I, you know, when it became known as Tommy John surgery, I said, TJ, they think you're a doctor. I'll bet if you asked, I'll bet if you asked a lot of the hundreds of pitchers that have had Tommy John surgery and just said innocently, who's the doctor that did that surgery? How many of them would say Tommy John? And how many of them would even know who Frank Job was? Yeah, no, you're right. They 
they just relate it to the tubing, the Job right. tubing. Yeah. He, he made the rubber tubing. And, uh, and that's part of our issue we talk about at the major league level where there's that, and it goes back to the theme where having a sense of reverence for the past, understanding that the, the success, the failures, those are to, to be learned from, not to be shut off like there's there's yeah. some fragility to it that we can't we can't absorb. I don't know. Um, I've kept you a long time today. I, I uh, we got deep. How do you want to leave the audience today? What what, what haven't we covered? And how do you want to? Well, say- I guess just you know, from a baseball standpoint, it's just sitting back and seeing uh, you know who these latest. I think the big rumor now, and I know MLB.com, they, they need to fill up the spaces with their yeah. articles every day. So it's always where Soto's going to be traded, Juan Soto. And, you know, it's the hot stove league where a lot of a lot of rumors fly around. But the winter meetings are coming up in, I think, a little over a week. Uh, one, of the, uh, one of the key topics I'll be looking at there, and I'm kind of torn. There's so many guys I would like to see uh, – you know, I would like to see get elected, but the uh, the Hall of Fame era committee, where uh, where they're voting on former managers and uh, I think some executives, but like Davey Johnson is eligible, uh, Bill White, who is a good friend of mine and yep. was my broadcast mentor, is uh, you know former National League president. He's on the ballot. Uh, Jim Leland. And so I believe they can vote for three, for three of the eight, and that'll be coming up in uh, December four, and then later on this winter, of course, I think it'll be uh, the the Hall of Fame ballot where the writers vote. And, and obviously, I'm a little biased, but I I hope that uh, Joe Maurer, I would hope he gets in on the first ballot, and yet I think the odds are are so difficult because, you know, I figured it out. The Hall of Fame has layers. Like, I I got a seat in the back row, but I got a seat. You know, Koufax is in the first row. He's got a box seat with Spahn and those guys. But I have a seat, and I'm grateful for that. But I think the way the writers look at it is, well, this guy eventually will be in the Hall of Fame, but I don't think he's on the same level as Adrian Beltre. So Beltre is going in on the first ballot. So I think that's the way they look at it. And that's why uh, some of the guys like Joe Maurer have had, uh, may have difficulty getting in on the first ballot. Todd Helton's getting closer, Billy Wagner, yeah, uh, Andrew Jones. Uh, and it is kind of a crazy system because when your career is over, it's over. And you're either a Hall of Famer or you're not. But I think it's this this thought of, well, he's not quite on the, and I understand that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be on the same level as Koufax. So Sandy went in right away. It took me 30 some years. And so I think that's the reason that you have the, the guys that don't get in right away, but eventually they will get in. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that. And the, the, the thing with the, the writers voting, again, taking a look at the modern day writer, most writers nowadays are not actually at the games, watching the games, as opposed to when they first instituted that writers were at the games, traveling with the players. They, I want, I I guess they're a little bit more personally engaged would be the right way to, to say it. I heard, I asked Jack O'Connell and, and uh, some of the other writers in Cooperstown that, and I believe 
I don't know. I thought that I thought there was kind of a rule that you had to see at least a hundred games a year to vote. Now, whether that means watching them on television, but you know, as far as your real beat writers, there's probably only fifty or sixty writers, and actually, the broadcasters would have as much of a good opinion on on the players as the writers because they're there every game you know, for their own team, but they see the visiting teams come in as well. But there are a lot of writers that I've heard even say, oh, boy, next year's going to be the first year I get a chance to vote for the Hall of Fame. And yet, they're probably not really that well qualified. I had a call yesterday from uh, the head of the New York uh, Baseball Hall of Fame, uh, uh, and and Rene LaRue, I believe it is. And uh, and he wanted to know what my thoughts were on Thurman Munson. And I said, well, you need to talk to Steve Hurt of the Elias Sports Bureau, because Steve has the comparables. He can say different things about Munson and all the different catchers of his era. So he went into some of the statistics, like Thurman threw out 45% of the base dealers. He caught for eight years... I think 140 nine-inning games. Yeah. And he had all those little hidden stats that I think of all the writers out there, I don't know how many of them look that deeply into uh, into those stats. That's how Ted Simmons, uh, my friend Teddy, who was a teammate in St. Louis, he didn't get the required 6% in his early years of eligibility to even stay on the ballot. And then when they started digging into some of the other statistics and found out what he'd done, lo and behold, he got voted in by the Veterans Committee. Yeah. Makes me wonder why the players don't have more power in the voting. Yeah. Because I think they would they would know the best of anybody as to who's good. Is there any flaws in that theory? Why the players wouldn't have well, more? I, I think like with this category up right now, I believe uh, – Actually, my wife Margie was reading me the, cat- the the names on the committee. I didn't even know what the names were. I think uh, Tom Glavin is one, uh, but but some of the players that played for these managers and were active during the era—that's what the Hall of Fame tries to do now—to get writers and players and executives that were, you know, that were active in your era. For example, and this is not a disrespectful comment to David Glass, but I noticed that one year that I was eligible, David Glass, who uh, owned the Kansas City A Royals, was on the committee. Well, he didn't get into the game until about 1998. My career ended in 1983. So unless he listens to the opinions of somebody else, he's going to have no idea about what my career was like. And I think that's one era where the Hall of Fame has, has changed for the good is that they try to get people on these committees that are familiar with those that are eligible to be voted on. Yeah, it's logical. Um, but we can't always, uh, <laughs> we can't always lean on logical with, with some of the stuff they do. But I hope, hope some of these guys, you mentioned Todd Helton. I remember watching him play tremendous. He was a two-sport athlete in college. Was yeah. Manning's backup quarterback, I think, right? I think he he either he, did or he could have been the quarterback at Tennessee or yeah. was he? Yeah, he was uh, – I can't remember if he was his backup, if he was Peyton Manning's backup or if he held the position before and Manning took it over. But 
he was a prominent player on that Tennessee football and obviously baseball as well. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, guys like him, I'd love to see turn the corner and get, get some more votes to get in. But I'm anxious to watch what you said. Some of the managers that are mentioned, these guys really influenced the game. Bill White, of all people, you know, you, you know him a little bit more intimately than, than uh, most do. But all the different roles he played in baseball. Yeah. Uh, th- those, those are significant. Well, I used to. I when 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 we spent more time together, I think Bill's health is failing right now. I believe he's about to be eighty-nine, but uh, I always thought he'd be a great commissioner. Yeah, like no nonsense guy and uh, and well-educated guy, and he was a player. He was a league president. He would have been a logical contender. So, you know, the fact they can only vote for three, uh, that that there's a lot of. Uh, there's a lot of quality guys. Uh, I know Davy Johnson and uh, Jim Leland. It escapes me the other. Uh, I thought there was. I'm, I'm looking at. Um, I'm looking at my MLB.com right now, and I don't see an article on specifically those guys. But uh, there's eight of them that are all pretty very qualified. So it's going to be a tough choice for the voters. Yeah. And do do you have, are you are you on any of the voting committees? Are you allowed to say? I am not, but I think I will be. Um, <clears throat> I will be the next time um, Tommy John is eligible, Dick Allen. Uh, oh, yeah. I know Josh Rawwich, the president of the Hall of Fame, has asked, and, and uh, would you like to be on some era committees? And I said, obviously, I would if, if there are committees where I can speak intelligently about guys I played with or against. And I said, I may be a little biased in some cases. And he said, well, that's why we want guys on that committee to state the case. You might have four executives and four writers that I might open their eyes to some of the things that I think about Tommy John and about Dick Allen. And I'm sure probably uh, some others that are, that are on there that I played with that should be considered. So I would look forward to that. I think that's a great piece and that's a great point. Um, It kind of goes back to the theme of our shows I know the Hall of Fame is built a lot on numbers, you know, number of years you played. There's magic numbers with wins and home runs, but it's the space between the notes. It's the stories. It's the, the, the things that you'll contribute as well to being on a committee that's the difference maker. Those are the reasons why people go to the Hall of Fame and that support the Hall of Fame. So, hey, I don't care what seat you have, front row, back row. I'm, I'm, I'm happy for you. I'm proud of you that you're in the Hall of Fame. There's very few people get to play professional baseball. Even fewer get to play in the majors. Nobody played as long as you did, so you had to be doing something right. And, um, you know, just a, a, a tiny bit of this population that starts the game when there's, you know, six, seven, eight years old with that dream, get to have a seat at all. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that was recognized. I don't care if it was first ballot, second ballot, whenever. You deserve to get in. You did the work, and you're a great, I think you're a great role model for baseball. I'm glad yeah. we met. I'm glad you're doing this podcast with me, and I'm glad your messaging is being heard by our audience loud and clear. Well, I appreciate that. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm very humbled by it. It is, it is really a humbling experience when, you, uh, when you're there and you look around the room. And, of course, now at my age, most of all these guys are, are younger. But in my younger days, when I went to the induction for Harmon, Killebrew, and some of my former teammates, I've been to about 10 of them for former teammates, and you look around and see Warren Spahn and Robin Roberts and Henry Aaron and Willie Mays. And then, you know, to have a seat at the, in the same room with them, it's a, it's an extremely humbling honor. Yeah. And uh, we had Casey McKeon on the show uh, with Joe Frazero, man on second last or two weeks ago. 
And he asked if he could tell the story about uh, you and his dad, but was just uh, the way he, if you haven't listened to it, I'll, I'll forward it to you. But the way he described how much it meant to him and his dad at, to be invited to your, your Hall of Fame induction, uh, you, could, you could sense the emotion in his voice uh, even now when he told well, that story. I, I wouldn't have felt right without, uh, you know, if Jack physically wasn't able to come, but I certainly would not have felt right not inviting Jack McKeon, because as I said there, he probably, I, I think every player in the Hall of Fame probably has that manager, coach, influencer of some kind, that at some point in the minor leagues, if they didn't get the right advice, their career might have gone completely the other way. And for me, Jack McKeon was that guy, you know, my record was one and four and I thought one more bad start. I'm going to be going home looking for a job. And he's the one that had the confidence in me and ensured me I was going to pitch every four days and pitch in the big league. So, you know, I owe a lot to him and I'm, I'm glad he was there. Yeah. And I, I, I love how we're using this podcast and you're using your voice to try to do that for the young baseball out there. We talked about Jim Colonel's uh, research and how we can, you know, if Major League Baseball jumps in, awesome. If not, the youth have got to pay attention. But yeah, I, I appreciate. I think that. we we have to we have to, and, and Jim would be one we, that that has to uh, work on this. Is we have to get over the frustration and be critical of what they've done, and we have to present solutions to what could be done to to get over this uh, young kids. Uh, injuring their arms and having surgeries before their career barely begins. Yeah, I think that's, uh, if, if, with your permission, I think that's a great way to cap it off yep. in the podcast. I think that's a great message uh, for everybody out there. So we'll keep banging the drum here appropriately and sending our messaging out and 60,000 of you guys out there that support us. Make sure you give this one five stars. Write some nice comments underneath it because we do battle the analytics of the podcast world just like we do in Major League Baseball. We don't push them away. We know we have to embrace them in order to survive. And iHeartRadio, thank you for recognizing that. And same with Blackout Coffee. We appreciate your friendship in this journey. We have several more that are that are wanting to jump on board. Uh, we're, we're happy about that. But with Blackout Coffee, their slogan, Be Awake, Not Woke, uh, write the code DAVID, all capital letters, with the number 20 after it. Through the week, it'll get you 20% off of your coffee purchases, 15% in perpetuity. At the end of this week, we are expanding our partnership with them to reach each individual podcast instead of the whole network. So each individual podcaster will have their own uh, Blackout Coffee sponsorship, which is awesome. We're happy for them. They do a great job, make this engine go. And then, uh, as I mentioned earlier, Ted Kubiak's got a couple great books out, old school. I think you guys will appreciate that. A three-time World Series champion talking about the state of the game, what, what, what's going on with his his game. And then he's got a wonderful fielding book. My, my kids have read it. I've read it. Um, it's a, it's a deep dive into how to field the ball properly. And he is coming out with his children's book uh, in January. I suggest getting these two as a stocking stuffer for the holiday. And then if he's doing pre-orders, I'll check with him, pre-order that children's book. Um, great, great thoughts here, uh, given by Ted Kubiak. And we, he's one of our most faithful listeners, Jimmy. He emails me after every single show. Not well, just I want to. I want to get a copy of that uh, is old school, and I want to get a copy of the infield uh, book because all of that stuff. When we do our podcasts or when I talk baseball, particularly when I was still announcing games, that's the that's what I want to hear from is guys that actually did it, and uh, nobody did it better than Ted. Yeah, well, uh, I'll connect you two after the show, and Ted listens to it anyway. So, Ted, text Jim. Your uh, Jim will send you his address, and we'll. Uh, 
get get them some books out that way. But but thanks again, Jim, for for what you do for the show and for the network and episode three sixty four here on Cot's Corner with the Hall of Famer Jim Cott. Uh, thanks to the audience. We'll see you next week. Yeah.